Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini-series on the off-weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoy this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to TVP. We've made it to the end of the Meet the Manager series, which has been in celebration of the 10th birthday of the Value franchise at Schroeder's. And we're going full circle this week. We've got Tobias Carlisle interviewing your steadfast host of TVP, Juan Torres. So you will probably know Tobias as the host of either the Acquires Multiple or the Value After Hour podcasts. You may also know him as a frequent guest on this podcast. In fact, he's probably the second guest that we had about four years ago. He is a deep value investor at heart and is the founder of Acquirers Funds. He is an author on the topic, publishing about four books, but there is a new one coming out soon, so keep your eyes peeled. Tobias is going to be interviewing Juan, Uh, You'll know Juan as the host of The Value Perspective, but he is also an emerging markets value investor at Schroeder's and has been with the company since 2017. Previous to Schroeder's, he had stints at Pictet, Credit Suisse, and Bank Columbia, but I'm not going to ruin the whole story. Listen on. Tobias and Juan are going to focus on emerging markets this conversation. They're going to cover Juan's journey from Columbia to the value team in London, emerging markets' tough decade, and what it means to be a value investor in these markets cyclical businesses and the opportunity set in EM, and finally, how the value team embraces behavioral biases and build a process to help us cope with them. Enjoy. Hi, Juan. How are you? Good to see you again. Hey, Tommy. How are you? Thank you very much for for your time. My pleasure. It's great chatting to you. It's great chatting to a emerging markets value investor, because I don't think there has been a tougher place to be for maybe more than a decade and perhaps might not be a better place to be for the next decade. How do you feel about that? That's funny that you mentioned that. We usually joke that if you would have been an emerging market investor over the course of the last decade, you would have been a little bit of an underdog. And within that, if you were a value investor within emerging markets, you are the underdog of the underdog. So it's been definitely horrible, regardless of how you think about it, either the asset class or the style. But, you know, as value investors, we believe that price is everything. And actually, emerging market stocks, the entire space look very attractive. And we do think that probabilistically, the next 10 years look very appealing. I think that the challenge is is partly 
whether it's true or not, there's a perception that there is some political risk in many of these countries. And also perhaps that the uh, the businesses aren't as, you know, aren't as big, aren't as well capitalized, aren't as well, they just haven't been run for as long. When you look at them, how do you, how do you make those judgments? Do you, do you think that that's a fair critique or do you think that there's opportunity under the, under that perception? I think that the perception creates the opportunity. There is definitely the case that emerging markets as an asset class is a riskier asset class than developed markets. And I never have understood why people back in the day when the Alibabas were growing a lot and people saw no ceiling to how much they were going to grow forward, they used to make this comparison of peering Amazon and Alibaba. And those are two very different businesses operating in two very different environments. We have always thought that you can, just the rule of law and the certainty that that brings that you'll find in a place like the US is not the same as what you might find in a place like China. And so they are definitely operating under more uncertainty conditions. And you should reflect that in the price that you pay. And you should demand a higher rate of return for the businesses that you are buying in these places. There's no point in buying anything in an emerging market country if it provides you an internal rate of return that is similar or just a little bit above that of a developed market company. Because the risk profile are completely different. Now, whether these businesses are better run or they have longer histories, I don't know, like there are companies in South Africa that have very good management that have been around for almost a century. There's this company called Tiger Brands. It's a consumer staple company. They've been around since apartheid. And so that's a, a quite, or even before that, if I don't, I'm, not, I'm not getting that, I hope I'm not getting that uh, incorrect. And so th there's history behind many of these businesses. And sometimes just like the market forgets about them. What about the cyclicality of those businesses? I'm I'm Australian. I come from uh, it's a developed market, but it has a very heavy weighting towards basic materials, which is a mining. You know, there are lots of miners, lots of minerals, oil and gas as well, and it is a market that suffers from cyclicality relative to to say the US. Do you find that too when you're looking in emerging markets? How do you how do you discount cyclicality when you have the political risk and so on? So I think that if you are price-driven as we are, and we believe that price is the single most important variable that you need to look at when thinking in terms of investing in any of these companies, there are two different situations. One situation it can originate when there is a political event in any of these countries. And then that will create fear and uncertainty, and the market will react to that. And then it will push the prices of every single asset in that country, regardless of the quality of the asset, down. And so if you take a very contrarian view and you believe that over the course of X amount of years, whatever that political event caused is not going to be as damaging as the market is pricing, then that's potentially a very good opportunity. That's very different from operating in a market 
or buying into a market where a company is actually going on to, on, under or is facing a structural decline, which actually those you find everywhere, regardless of whether or not it's a developer and emerging market. And so I'll give you an example, and I'm pretty sure that you are quite close to the situation. Chile, in the context of LATAM, and I'm Colombian, has always been regarded as the best in class country, very the most developed country in the entire LATAM space. And it has a very strong institutional framework. It's quite developed. And actually, for many people looking at EM, they would actually say that there are two countries that are quite developed, maybe three, Taiwan, South Korea, and Chile. And because the pension funds are quite strong and big in, in Chile, prices for very good companies used to be very high. It was very difficult for a value investor to buy Chilean companies. And then Boric gets elected, and that creates a lot of uncertainty. And they believe, the Chileans believe, that they need to write the constitution again. And the people that they elect to write the constitution seem to be market unfriendly. And so that creates a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Chilean prices decline to the point that a lot of these businesses that you would have never been able to buy before become very attractive. And so if you take the view that, yes, the country is going to go through some uncertainty, yes, there might be some changes that we might not like, but historically, this is a country with a very strong institutional framework, and that institutional framework will be able to withstand the challenges that they might be facing, then that creates a great opportunity. And if those risks subside, either because the constitution is not as unfriendly as people believe that it was going to be, or because the elected government is not able to pass on a lot of the reforms that we're proposing, then the market gets more comfortable and then the risk fades away and then the market reprises and that creates a great opportunity. The other situation is one that Dan Rasmussen, who has been on your podcast and on our podcast as well, on his research piece wrote about, which is whenever the world is going through some sort of crisis, and developed markets actually fall off a cliff. And if EM falls off a cliff with those, then that's a very good opportunity as well, because there's nothing wrong with the emerging market per se, it's just the market reacting to whatever depends of that specific context. And so, you know, in emerging markets, you never get bored. It's There's so many things to look at and so many different situations. And uh, you, you get in value and doing the value, you get your typical cyclical uh, companies, but you also have companies in structural decline, you have special situations, you have companies that are growing, but maybe they're not growing as fast as the market wanted them to grow, or that growth is not being priced, which are just being overlooked. It seems that one of the unusual aspects in being an emerging markets investor is you need to be somewhat aware of the political situation in the countries where you're investing. And it seems to conflict a little bit with this idea of Buffett's perhaps, and many other value investors, I think, have adopted that, that, you know, for the most part, you should ignore macro, you should ignore geopolitical, you should be focused on the underlying business. How do you reconcile those two ideas? And to what extent do you need to be macro geopolitical focused as an emerging markets investor? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say that, to my knowledge, there are very few emerging market value investors that follow a bottom-up valuation-driven approach 
most of the funds or teams out there that I am aware of do exactly what you do. They're top-down macro investors. They try to get the macro at the country level right first. And if they do that correctly, then they're already ahead. And then they try to do the stock picking within that country. And then if they do that, then they're compounding. If you are doing the value investing in the context of marine markets, we tend to explain to people that we are macro aware, we are not macro led. We try to understand the macro situation, but we also try to take a long-term view about how things might play out and whether or not we're being compensated for the risk that we're taking. And that's very important. That compensation, that risk return profile of the, each investment case is very important to us. And so we don't spend time trying to forecast GDP growth or inflation or unemployment or interest rate levels on any of these countries. Because if we are taking a position in a company where we believe that we're going to be invested for three to four or five years, trying to understand what the market is going to do in the six, next six months is not going to dictate the outcome of that specific investment. And also in the value team, we don't believe we have the skill set to look or make predictions about macro. And so the team never does it uh, in any of the different strategies that we run, and we certainly don't do it in the context of primary markets. Having said that, ignoring the macro would be a huge mistake. Macro is important and relevant in the context of primary markets. It translates very much into your dollar returns. If the macro, if you have an accident on the macro or you ignore it, you might do very well on the local currency, but in dollar terms, you might actually lose. And so the way that we account for that is through portfolio construction, where we lever up the vast resources of Schroders. There are many well-researched teams that look at the macro environment in emerging markets. They quantitatively scorecard and rank many of the countries, and we get that data. And we, based on that, we look at the risk profile of the portfolio and we make sure that we are not taking risks that we are not aware of. You, you've uh, you, you somewhat led me into my next question, which is how do you think about portfolio construction when you have, you think, you know, many value investors have to confront to what extent do you, how big should your biggest holding be? How much concentration do you want in any given industry or sector? And then on top of that, you have how much concentration do you have in any given country? So how do you how do you think about that, and how does that manifest in the portfolio? To me, and this happens across the entire value team. It's not specific to emerging markets. We believe that your highest, largest weighted positions should be the ones that offer you the most limited downside. That where you believe that you are protected on the downside. And those that are maybe the highest probability of capital impairment, provided that you believe that you're being compensated for taking that risk, there's a place for them in the portfolios and they should be positioned at a much lower weight in the portfolio. And so, for instance, what we do is we make a subjective call on the risk of any of every specific 
situation. We score those risks from one to 10, 10 being the highest risk, one being the lowest risk. And if something is a 10, what you are signaling is that you believe that there's a high probability that you're getting into a situation where there's a tangible risk of you impairing your capital. But you can also believe, or you believe, that the upside being offered, given the circumstances, is substantial. And there is a place for that specific situation in your portfolio. And you just need to weight it accordingly. And if you get it right, and that risk subsides, then it's okay for that position to be reweighted upwards in the portfolio to reflect its new risk. Or it could be the other way around, where you believe that maybe the risk was not that high or non-existent, and then something happened, and then you need to reposition that position in your portfolio. So I don't know if in the context of emerging markets, if you are entering a country or, or, or investing in a company that is operating in a country where you believe the geopolitical environment is uncertain and is risky, then even if it's the best company in the world, you probably want to account for that risk and position that as a low weight in your portfolio. And on the other side, if you believe that you are buying into a very good company in a place that is quite well developed with a good institutional framework, super strong balance sheet, then you should be able to position that at a larger weight. And that's how we tend to think about positioning in the context of portfolio construction. How about liquidity? There's, there seems to me to be a great deal of liquidity differential between small companies and big companies. Different markets have different liquidity levels. How do you think about trading into something where you probably you've reasonably uh, sizable capital, takes a little while to trade in, means that you can't get out quickly. So, and and if it goes against you, it probably makes it even harder to get out of it. So, yeah. how do you how do you deal with that? So, if if the positions that we're looking at are believed to be illiquid and then liquidity is very ephemeral it means many things to many different people when you think that liquidity is there is not there when you think that it's going to be hard to get out maybe you find someone that actually will grab your shares out of your hands so if we believe at inception that the liquidity might be a little bit thin we position that weight in the portfolio to be low so that if for whatever reason we made a mistake or something changes and we need to get out or something happened to that specific company or that specific country, then the amount of capital that is trapped in that situation is not very high. Kevin Murphy, who is the co-head of the value team, made the comment the other day that value investors are providers of liquidity. When people are selling, value investors tend to be buying. When people want to buy, then value investors are selling. And so I think that there is a kernel of truth in that in practice. I also think that when you are investing for the long term, the fact that something looks illiquid right now doesn't mean that it's going to be liquid in five years' time or four years' time, because these things change a lot. And so it's a tricky question. We all know that in theory, thing securities that look very thinly liquid are the ones that could potentially offer you some of the best returns available. And so we don't try to we don't try to shy away from them. We embrace them. You just need to be very careful about how you go about them. 
the best case scenario, I guess, is it's it's very hard to get into because nobody wants to let them go. They know that they're deeply undervalued, but they've got other reasons for selling. And then on the other end, when you're trying to get out and everybody's trying to pile in, there's lots and lots of liquidity around. It reminds me a little bit of when when Buffett was talking about the selling out of the airlines at the general meeting. And he said he was surprised at how much liquidity there was for his sales, which means that there were plenty of people buying on the other side. And I think he was quietly saying, I don't think anybody should have been buying these, but but clearly they were. I guess my, my question, sorry, sorry, Ron. No, yeah, I wasn't saying that that's absolutely right. I mean, if you get it right, then you buy when everyone fears an outcome and that's reflected on the price. So you're buying on the way down. And if you get it right and either the company turns around or the country or the sector is not as bad as people believe it was going to be, then you sell when actually everyone is finding their peace of mind and the stomach to re-enter into the situation or the risk has faded or whatever risk perception has improved. And, and I think that that's one of the beauties of this. That's what makes this job sometimes so interesting because you're playing with all of this psychological emotions and you're trying to exploit them and hopefully you are not caught into one of them but we also know that you make mistakes in this business a lot and it's about how you deal with those mistakes and how you think about them how does a guy who's colombian make his way to to london in a in a value firm what's the what's your path so I was born and raised in Colombia, came to the UK to do an MBA in 2009. And I had never heard, I wasn't, I used to be an investment banker on the corporate finance side back in Colombia. And I wasn't really that much interested in markets back then. And I'm going to tell you a story that I swear to God, it's absolutely true, even if it sounds like a cliche. I was, uh, after finishing my MBA, I, I joined Credit Suisse in a team called Holt. And I was once waiting at a reception to meet a client. And whilst we were waiting, I picked up uh, The Economist. And in The Economist, there was this article about this guy that ran a hedge fund that had written a book in the early 1990s that had developed this called following the print and it cost you like $4,000 to get it on eBay, but there was a PDF available making the rounds on the internet. And as many good investors, I like to read a lot and that piqued my attention. And that book, of course, is Margin of Safety by Seth Klarman. And I know that this sounds like a cliche, but I read that thing and that thing changed my life. I swear to God that that's a, a true story. I, I read that and I, after that, I just wanted to be a value investor. There was no other path for me. That's the only thing that I wanted to do. And I was very lucky that I was able to transition from the sell side to the buy side and joined uh, a team at Peak the Asset Management, the Swiss bank that did long only value emerging markets. And I joined as a generalist, as an analyst, the two global funds. And I started reading everything that was available about value investing, including your books, by the way. Those were very important uh, in my journey. And I only stopped reading about value investing when the books that I was reading were making a reference to books that I had already read. And as part of that journey, I came across 
the value team accelerators. And the value team was doing the sort of value that I wanted to do. And so my team is very Benjamin Gra- Graham-led, Grahamites at heart, very deep value, non-forecasting, looking at the history, allowing the, the, the numbers to speak for themselves. And they were running the blog, the value perspective. And I religiously started reading the blog. I would come to the office, I would open the FT, the Wall Street Journal, and the value perspective. And one day in 2016, they posted on the blog that they were looking for someone. And they list the characteristics of the person that they uh, wanted to hire, but they didn't say exactly what position they were filling. It wasn't clear if it was an analyst position, a PM position, if it was an analyst position to what fund, to what sector, what country. They just listed the behavioral characteristics of the, per- of the people or the person that they were looking for. And they invited candidates to pitch an idea and send their CVs. And I remember very vividly my oldest daughter was three months and I came home and I told Marcel and my wife, I'm really sorry about this, but for the next 72 hours, I'm not going to do anything else but work on my pitch because I want to be part of this team. And I did. I sent my idea. They called me for interview six months later and happily I joined the team in January of 2017. What was the pitch? What was the idea? My idea was a company in Egypt called Telecom Egypt, which owned I think it was 50% of Vodafone Egypt. And I, I believe that either the fixed line business was being mispriced or the associate was being mispriced, but one of the, you were only paying for one of those two businesses. And uh, I remember that when I joined, I actually checked the global fund that my team runs, and I saw Telecom Egypt, and I felt so proud that it was there. For <laughs> sure, these guys bought it because of me. And then I found out the reality that they had already owned it since before me. So that was for the pitch. The Value Perspective podcast clearly borrows its name from the, the blog, which you are an avid reader of, and, and you're looking after the podcast. Tell me a little bit about the history of the podcast. The story of the podcast came after we had a conversation with Annie Duke back in 2019, which she had come up with her bestseller, Thinking in Bats, and the whole, her approach to adopting probabilistic thinking to make better decisions, we thought that that was very powerful. And we interviewed her for the blog, and we were very lucky to record that conversation. And it was so rich. And I thought at the time that there was something very useful from trying to reach out to people across different fields, different from finance, to that were making a lot of decisions and dealing with a lot of uncertainty and try to try to learn how they were doing it and try to incorporate that for us, not only as investors, but on our day-to-day basis. And we came out with this short mini-series of interviews where we had the privilege of interviewing an air marshal that uh, had just finished his career at NATO as chief of staff and a group, group of ladies that had just come back from uh, skiing across the Antarctic and we had these amazing conversations. And the only person that we had in finance back then was Michael Mabusin, who was introduced to us by Annie Duke. And when we went live with that series, that did very well. And Nick Kirch came to me and said, you know what? 
this looks very appealing. Would you like to take it to the next level? The blog in itself was already kind of peaking. And I think that the podcast was just a natural extension to the blog. And we've been very privileged to have amazing conversations with some of the best people in different fields over the course of the last four years. And we're very grateful for that. And you've been on the pod twice. Now, uh, this is your third time uh, hosting it. Uh, and, and we have enjoyed those conversations very much. Yeah, I loved it. It was great chatting. The, really, that that is what we're doing. We're making decisions under uncertainty with incomplete information. What what's the what's the best way to go about doing that? What's what sort of traps should we avoid when we're doing that? I guess that's two questions. So one is an upside question, and one is a downside question. I think that being aware of your heuristics can be very powerful. It might be very difficult for you to control them. Actually, by definition, they are outside of your control. You are still human and you will feel fear and you will feel the pressure and all of that. But if you're aware of that and you build a process that will put in place safeguards so that even when you are under a lot of pressure, you can still make a good decision and you choose the quality of the process over the outcome and you really embrace it because it's very easy to say it, but doing it is very, very difficult. Then I think that that positions you in a way that should over time, despite the fact that you will for sure make mistakes over the long term, you should come out on the other side with a positive result. I think that there are many, many tools on decision-making that we have explored over the course of the last four years. And it's one of those things that they sound very logical. They sound very easy. Theoretically, they make a lot of sense, but putting them in practice is extremely, extremely difficult. And it requires a lot of commitment and belief in the process. And I've been very fortunate to be part of a team of people that are very process-driven and they understand all of this and they understand their weaknesses and they understand their behaviors. And actually, they they have built a process that would allow them to, to protect themselves as much as possible from that environment. Being a contrarian, by definition, is a horrible feeling. You have all of these thousands of people telling you that you are wrong all the time. And so we have built a process that would that will allow us potentially to take advantage of that rather than being uh, uh, subject to it, if that makes any sense. It does, yeah. I like that process over outcome and uh, also being aware that you are, are subject to them, even though you're desperately trying to avoid them. That, that's I think that's really good advice. Yeah, I think that, I mean, nothing's perfect, right? And so you build a process and those that process will also have, I mean, there's always a trade-off. And so I'll give you something like one example, for instance. My team doesn't like to talk to that many people outside of the team. They, we don't tend to talk that much to management and companies. We don't tend to talk to more, that much with the south side analysts. We don't tend to spend that much time with other investors. And the, the very clear reason for that 
is that it, you always get bias. Even if you have all the protections in place, you always get bias by whoever you are having a conversation. And if you are buying something that is very deep value, if you are going into Kazakhstan after Russia invades Ukraine, and you have all the market against you, you are going to feel that fear. And then it serves no purpose for anyone to highlight and reinforce the fact that you might be absolutely crazy to go into that situation. But probabilistically, you might say, well, actually, the price is so good that if, if a lot of things I'm actually the outcome is going to be very good. And despite the fact that the risk score might be very high, my potential upside is also very high. I'm being compensated for taking that risk. The downside to that, which I think in my mind makes a lot of sense, the downside to that is that then you 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 fall into what Vitali Katnatson calls as myopic circles. You end up talking to people that might have an inclination to think just as you are thinking. So you're reinforcing another bias. And then how do you counter that bias? It's very difficult. And so that's part of the game. And that's what makes this very interesting. But we are aware of the bias. And some people are more willing to say, I'm aware of the bias, but I think that me getting uh, influenced by other people's emotions, it's worse than actually maybe me ending up talking with people that might reinforce my own view about how the world's going to play out. I mean, it's the great challenge, isn't it, that you're, as a value guy, you're already contrary and you're talking to other people who are, um, you know, perhaps they're potentially selling the stock to you. And so to, to reinforce your own bias, you go and talk to other value guys who, who think the same way you do and just hammer in the bias. It's very, very hard to avoid it. You never know. What's the contrarian view and what's the mainstream view? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, 100%. There's been a sort of evolution over the last, I don't know, decade perhaps plus, and I think it's a, an extension beyond what Buffett has said. I think if Graham was sort of you, you very much looking at existing balance sheet, existing cash flows and trying not to make too much of a projection, just sort of perhaps assuming no growth, just assuming that the business continues to muddle in. And then Buffett said, well, there are clearly some businesses that are better. They have these very high returns on invested capital and they can compound. And it feels to me like over the last decade, there was a transition even further along from Buffett where they said, you don't need to look at high returns on invested capital. You can see the growth rates in these businesses and eventually they'll grow past whatever high fixed costs they have and whatever excess sort of spending that they're doing to to really win whatever you know sector or whatever little niche they're trying to win and then at that point they'll become you know these wonderful businesses you've said you Graham, so i know r- roughly where you are on the spectrum i'm just sort of interested to know what do you think about that is that a product of the market environment or do you think that that's where we're all going to have to go eventually we'll have to get to that point where we're really looking out 20 years in the future to where these things finally get profitable? I I hope not, because otherwise my entire career would be very much at stake. I, I, I do believe, which is also a little bit of a cliche, I think that people say, look, either you, either you get value investing or you don't get it at all. And for me, that was the case. I read the book and I had never heard about value investing. I just clicked in my head. I think that people ask, like for me, like, like when, when people think about growth, it's either people have the mindset of, 
it's priceless and you should pay whatever price there is for it. And then there's people that would say, yeah, I know that it's very good and it's very important, but actually it's very speculative in nature. I just don't know what the growth rate is going to be. And I don't know what the growth is expected, what, what sort of growth rate is expected by the market. So if I believe that a company should grow at 10% and the market believes that it should grow at 15%, then it will sell off because it's not meeting those expectations. But for me, that 10% is good enough, maybe, potentially. And, and even Buffett has said it in the past, in the 1990s, in one of his uh, general meetings with shareholders, he made the point that not necessarily uh, a company growing makes a good investment. You could actually, if something is priced on the growth and the perception on that specific company is very low, it might be the case that actually that ends up being a very good investment. What has happened over the last few years, uh, I, I, I don't really know. Like people, maybe it was the lack of yield that just propelled many of these businesses and it became this reinforcing, self-enforcing behavior where market participants just saw prices going in one direction and then all of the theory behind financial valuation and what businesses are supposed to be worth just went out of the window. And the other thing that one, one, one can expect is that potentially at some point things will revert back to the mean, which is another thing that is very important for value investors, mean reversion. We've seen it all the time. And it, it looks like a very long stretch of time for value investing not working, but it's not, this is not the only time in the history of value investing not working. Over the course of the last 100 years, if you go back in time, in the 90s, you will find an article that says that value investing is dead. And in the 70s, it would, uh, it would happen again, and in the early 2000s. And, and so, who knows? One thing that I, that I think is worth noting, though, I, I just did this yesterday afternoon, just for, just for my own interest. It's it's this is only a US analysis, and I only do the US because this inf the data is easy to find. And so, Fama French, uh, Ken French has a data library where all of the returns are available for free, and you can pull this data down and, and, and look at this yourself. I'm not saying this to you; I'm saying this to, to anyone who's listening. But what they they look at the different portfolios formed. You can look at book price to book. You can look at price to earnings. One of the data series. I just use price to cash flow because I think that it's probably the closest to what many of us are trying to do. We're trying to get to the cash flows ultimately. And then you can compare the most expensive portfolio, the most expensive decile portfolio. So the most expensive 10% going back to 1951. And that data runs all the way up to June, 2023. And I ran those two together. If you've been invested in the value portfolio, you've outperformed on average 5% a year which is 20 times more over that full 72-year period to date, which sort of seems to me like that's a no-brainer, right? So you should be in value. But then if you look at the return series, the outperformance stops in 2014 in August. And since 2014, value has underperformed the expensive portfolios by 75%. And that was 76% to August 2020. And since August 2020, in the three years since then, value has had a little recovery, but now it's fallen back to 75%, which is, you know, almost identically where it was at the very worst. So that it's this, it really stands out on this chart. It's this enormous drawdown. 
And so I can understand why people look at that chart and say something's fundamentally broken here. Something has changed in this market that this drawdown is, you know, if you're running a value portfolio and you're down 75%, you know, people would say, have you, has something happened? Like, have you, are you well, you know, what's, what's happening? So <laughs> how, how do you, how do you, how do you justify that to, to investors or unbelievers? We spend a lot of our time communicating with our investor base and our clients. We want to work with people that will be partners with us for the long term, that understand the strategy that we're trying to deliver, that understand that things go through cycles, that one of the reasons that value works is that it goes through a period of underperformance. And it's uncomfortable and it's difficult and there's a lot of volatility. And that's why it's very difficult to actually execute properly. And that's why many people, despite what they might believe, they can't be value investors because it's a very difficult strategy to follow. Having said that, I, we are testing the patience of a lot of our <laughs> investment communities, not only us, but anyone that is in the value space. And, and it's very difficult for people that have been value investors not to style drift and end up justifying themselves by getting into situations that you might have never considered to be value. I think that in the value team at Chillers, you find a team of nine investment professionals who are very passionate and believe in value, very hardcore. Uh, it's very embedded in the way that we think. And we are counting on the strategy, strategy to work out going forward. And if you believe that prices or price is the single most important variable that you should look at and the one that will di dictate returns going forward, then when you look at the value valuation buckets, they are priced for delivering very good returns over the next decade. And, and that's what we keep, we keep punching that message to people, just look at the chart. And it's not only us saying it. There's a lot of research from a lot of people doing value, including yourself or the people at GMO or Sina or many other people just saying like, look, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And at some point it needs to go back to some sort of normality. And we've had a few false starts, as you mentioned, after 2020. But the opportunity set is very rich. And if you're patient and you have a long-term mentality, which is very difficult in these markets, I think that you should be able potentially to achieve a very good rate of return if you stick to the strategy. I should add on top of that, that one of the uh, data points that the that the French data captures is the yield on those portfolios. And so the cash flow yield um, on the value portfolios is as rich now as it was in 1999 at the peak. And more than that, the differential between the value portfolios and the expensive portfolios is equally wide to where it was in in 1999, which I think is which I think is somewhat encouraging because if you were just looking at the return profile, you might say this is fundamentally broken. But if I think if you understand that the fundamental picture sort of reflects the fact that value is undervalued itself as a strategy, it's one of the very difficult things to sort of get your head around that. Because value, to me, it feels like it's an evergreen strategy. The idea of buying something undervalued, sort of, that's that's to me, that's how you generate the performance. But value itself as a strategy does seem to be a little bit cyclical, and I don't, I don't know why. Do you do you have any theory why it might why that cyclicality might exist? Uh, no, 
No, I think that it goes into the nature of markets. You buy into situations where the prices are reflecting a lot of fear. People get more comfortable with it. They push the prices up. You go through this emotional roller coaster where uh, people start to see no risks ahead. That's reflected on a very high price. And then something wrong happens and the cycle starts all over again. I just think it's part of the nature. I, I think that one, I, I've heard a, conversa a conversation or one of the episodes that you had on the Acquirers podcast with, with Jake, where he was making the point that 10 years look like a very long time frame, but actually in the context of history and humanity and even markets, it's nothing. And it does feel very long and it has been very long. And for us living it, it's been horribly wrong, but and painful, but it's not that long a period of time. And, it, and, it, and also it's been a very unique decade with a set of circumstances with rates being very low that must have had an impact on the way that people were pricing securities and now that you are seeing some sort of normalization well let's see let's wait and see what happens well it must be twofold right it's partially buffett has said that uh interest rates act like gravity on stock prices so when you push interest rates to zero you know the discount rate i i it i get a ref on my on my valuations i get an infinite infinite valuation when the discount rate is zero. But then it also has an impact on the fundamentals too. So if the cost of capital is zero, marginal projects, everything gets over the hurdle. You can do just about anything. And then you get this crazy situation where you have a SPAC, where a SPAC is just a box of cash with a plan to do something. And you can get, at certain times in the market, you can get your box of cash to trade at a big premium to, to cash. I mean, that's that's a pretty good trick. Yeah, that's that's absolutely crazy. But I know, like you are a value investor yourself, and you've been going through a lot of the a lot of this yourself. How how are you thinking about it? How how have you felt over the course of the last few years? I think it's multi. I think it's been. I think the worst of it was really through, you know, COVID. I think that pre-COVID value had been already underperforming for an extended period of time, and I had thought that what we need to to get going again is a big crash because when when you get a crash, people return to fundamental values. All of the high flying stuff really gets cut to pieces. And then if you look at when value tends to work, it really does do best at the beginning of the cycle when everything's been devastated and you can go through the wreckage and pick up the very best things. And it tends to look less good at the end of the cycle where people are fearless, fundamentals don't matter. You need a really good story that grabs attention and that's what drives returns. And I thought we just had this extended boom fueled by low interest rates and probably, you know, probably some fiscal, probably some monetary effects, not a complete lack of fear. And I thought that the crash would be the thing that would resolve that issue. And instead, what happened out of the bottom was all of the stuff that was, you know, the COVID stuff where everybody here was locked down. So that was already the beneficiaries of the COVID bust were the companies that had already been working really well, like the, you know, Zoom and Netflix and Microsoft, all those companies exploded out of the bottom and all of the old economy stuff where, you know, the cyclicals all got left behind. And so that I thought was the real, uh, that was a real dagger in the heart for, for value <laughs> at the time. 
but here we, you know, here we are. And I thought, and it started working for, there was this very short run for cyclical value and for smalls too, because I have a small portfolio as well. And the smalls did for a very short period of time. It was like October, 2020 to about April, 2021 for six months, they exploded. And then they sort of peaked. And, and since then they've traded down sideways. So that, that second part, that was a real heartbreaker for, for the value guys to go back into that. And now, I mean, that's why I did the I did the little analysis yesterday, just just wondering where, where are we in this cycle? It's hard to believe that we're back almost to where we were at the very worst of it. And the trend in it does like the trend does seem to be that there's this, it feels like it's always going to be a large growth market. And I know that I know intellectually that that's not the case but it it becomes sort of emotionally hard to look at those you know the the comparisons and see see what turns around i still think it's probably going to have to be a crash that turns it around i think maybe maybe covid wasn't a real you know it wasn't a mega bear it wasn't like a 2000 2002 drawn out bear it wasn't a 2007 2009 drawn out bear if anything it was a flash crash it was like a 1987 where it falls really, really quickly, and it fell faster than 1987, which until that point had sort of been the fastest drop. But then it recovered so quickly too. It was like you know the golf ball off a concrete path, where it just rocketed back to to new all time highs. And I thought again, you know, when 2022 began, 2021 was probably the peak for the market. Well, so that's the case. It's the peak for the S and P 500, and the market sort of fell over, but not really. We didn't ever actually get to that point where you know that the market didn't really crash in 2007 to 9 until really the fourth quarter of 2008 it had almost rallied back to its all-time high before it really fell over and there was the carnage of all of the bank failures and here we were we were sort of a year to 15 months into it when we started getting the regional bank failures here you know with S Silicon Valley Bank FRC and those other names and I thought well here we go this is the real this is the we're in the teeth of this thing now. Here it comes, and somehow that just it it just passed by, and we've rallied back, and now we're I don't know exactly, but we're five or six percent from all time highs in the S and P five hundred, which is sort of that's why everybody if you're not S and P five hundred, you're either you know if you're hedged or if you're value or if you're emerging markets or if you're small, you've just looked terrible in comparison to the S and P five hundred. So. I I I think you know I'm a value guy. I believe in mean reversion. I think this all turns around. I think in five years' time, with any luck, we'll be laughing about all of this. But it does. It's it's hard emotionally. And I I, I talk to people who are investors all the time, and they just sort of say, you know, at what point? You know, you're ten. We're ten years into this thing. We're, it's a decade now. That's a long time. At yeah. what point do you throw the white towel in and and drift a little bit and you know? start becoming more of a growth investor. I can't do it. I'm congenitally wired to be a value guy, but it, it, it's looking like a bad bet. <laughs> what do you think? Like what, what turns it around? Well, I mean, the most honest answer is I don't know. And I think that anyone that will tell you this, this is what's going to turn it around. Uh, that person doesn't know either. I get comfort. I don't know if you came across a, a paper that GMO made public a few months ago where they were showing that in the post 2000 years where value had some of its best years in 100 years 
there were a lot of periods within that where growth was recovering and doing very well, and the drawdown on value was very steep. And you can only hope that to a certain degree, history repeats itself, and we are just going through one of those batches. But actually, the turnaround in value took off in after vaccination day in October of 2020 or November of 2020. And, and this is just a period that feels a little bit uncomfortable, but things will kind of keep going the way that they were before. But maybe this is just me being very romantic about the investment <laughs> stuff and thinking that this is, this is going to play out very well or maybe not accepting reality. I hope that that is not the case. I do think that, I mean, it makes sense. If you buy something that is worth less, for what it's worth, if you if you're paying a lower price from from what that something is worth, then you should be doing well in time. I agree. I, I, I the, one of the the changes that I made through this period was I had sort of assumed that mean reversion was largely a given that if you found something trading at a deep enough discount that you would find eventually that the stock price would catch up over time roughly to where your intrinsic value estimate was. And that was a lot of the return that you would generate. You're sort of relying on that mean reversion. And I had someone say, well, or it became a little bit of a meme in the community where people said, well, aren't, if you're just relying on sort of price there reverting, aren't you sort of, isn't, that's not really value investing. Isn't value investing sort of looking for an improvement in the underlying value? So it made me go back and reconstitute the way that I, I considered it. And I thought, well, but that's a good, maybe that is a good point. Maybe we always need to be buying these things, assuming that we'll never get that closing. Maybe these things never go back to intrinsic value. So we need another way to win where it either has to be mean reversion from price to value or the underlying value just has to compound so that you can get your returns from the business. And then you can assume that we stay at this big discount. We're always going to be at this dis this discount. Your entry will be at a discount and your exit will be at a discount. And in the interim, you're relying on the performance of the underlying business. And so that's something that I've tried to, to work in. It's it's it, In some sense, it means that you have to stray a little bit from the deepest of the, of the deep value because you're not looking at things that are, it can't be static. It has to be able to grow on its own accord. What, what, what do you think? Is that when you're looking at these businesses in these other countries, are you saying, let's ignore the discount? Let's just think about what the underlying business itself can do. Yeah, I mean, we, in the context of emerging markets, you will, I think one of the best opportunities is when the market is being thrown out of the window, regardless of the quality of the business, of the, of the underlying business or the security in those specific in those specific countries. Because then you, you don't need to go and buy the cyclical company that is going to struggle and maybe it will never recover. And I think that in the context of emerging markets, in, in the context of emerging markets, you find that happening a lot. And I think that if you have the right mindset to look for those opportunities, you're quite well positioned to pick some really nice companies and situations. I I do agree with the fact that or let me rephrase that. The way that we sort of position our devalue portfolios is we are looking for turn around listed companies, a company that either has suffered an accident of their own making, or they are operating in a sector where there's a lot of uncertainty and fear. And the easiest one is the one where they have made a mistake because then if this, if we believe that if the balance sheet is strong enough, 
then management should be able to turn it around. And it's just a matter of time. If the company is operating in a sector that is undergoing challenge, either because it's uh, exposed to technology or whatever other reason, then those are a little bit more difficult. But you're always trying to research the company that it's going to be able to reinvent itself and fight back. And Nick Kirich, one of the cohorts of the value team, I've heard him said this many times before. People forget that when you are going into many of these situations, like management is not sitting around doing nothing. They are, in many cases, they are doing everything within their power to try to turn around. And if they are if they are talented and successful, then you should be able to capture that arbitrage. And it's just about giving them the time. And there are many cases when this has happened before. And I think that if you are fishing within the cheapest quintile of the market and you are very much aware of the situations, then you're putting the probabilities in your favor to capture the recovery in the fundamentals of that business, which will be reflected in a higher price at some point in the future without having to make grand assumptions about the, the company taking over the world and expanding into markets and growing market share. Because that's the other thing that people forget about growth. People tend to summarize growth as one number, but where is growth coming from? Is it from the growing population, a higher market, a new product? Are you growing market share? Are you increasing prices? What is it that is driving that specific? And in many, in many cases, actually, it's a combination of many of those variables. And I would be very surprised if people are actually talented, or there's a lot of people with a lot of talent to be able to forecast accurately where is that specific growth coming from. And so I think that's that's how we try to think about it. And and here we are. So it's hoping for the best. I think that's uh I think that's a good place to to leave it one. That's um I think that's a good philosophical um summing up of, of, of what we discussed. What do you think? Yeah, that's uh, very good. Uh, thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for coming to the Meet the Manager series and spending some time with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.